I promise you, I did not intentionally give him the hardest to read section of all time, knowing that it was Youth Sunday. I did not intentionally do that. It just so happened that that was the reading for today. I'm sorry, and great job. Well done. Seriously, as he was reading that, I was like, I just felt worse and worse in my heart. I'm like, oh, wow. So great job, great job. Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to have all of you here with us today. Awesome to have the youth and the youth leaders helping lead such an awesome service. I love these young people. Do you guys hear, hear a little feedback here? Good feedback here? Perfect. Oh, never mind. Use that microphone. We good? All right, we're good, we're good. I'm just gonna keep on going. If it gets bad, I'll turn it off. It's getting bad. new short series there we go <laughs> typically here at waypoint church we go through a book of the bible i'm just gonna turn it off it's okay Okay. Today, though, we're going to start a short four-week series looking at the values of our church. What are, what are the values? What are the values of our church, of Waypoint Church in particular? This is a, um, a quote from a consulting company. It says this. In a company, the values are the fundamental beliefs upon which your business and its behavior are based. They're the guiding principles that your business uses to manage its internal affairs as well as its relationship with customers. Once set, your core values need to be firm and unwavering, a mandate rather than a suggestion. They should affect every aspect of your business from employee benefit packages and workplace culture to marketing strategies and customer services. For our church, for us as a church, our values are the core distinctives that we believe we are called to as a church body. And so the next four weeks, we'll be going over these kind of core values, what we believe should probably be at the core of every church, but specifically God called us to really focus on these four things. So number one, the first value is the nations. The second value is the word of God. Third value is gospel community. And the fourth value is worship. 
Now, they're not listed in any order of importance. They're not listed in any kind of order of significance. It's just how we listed them today. And there's so many elements with all these distinctions. When we say the nations, we mean the gospel to the nations. We also mean loving the nations. We mean loving people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It means evangelism. It means missions. When it says the word, it means that we're taught, focused, based out of the word. That we're made to be people of the word, a church of the word. Gospel community means what it means for us to live this life out. Not as an individual, but as a community, as a people together. That This religion is not known as a solitary religion. And worship means our end goal is the honor of Jesus Christ, his name lifted high. We want people all around the world. We want our neighbors down the streets. We want our people in our apartment complexes. We want the nations that we don't know yet. We want them to worship Jesus. So this is kind of our four values that we want to go over. So today for a very short bit of time, I want to go into our first value, and that is the nations. Today's scripture we read is you kind of like, why did he pick that scripture? Most of you look at genealogies or look at stuff like, like names with, like, and, this and think, um, yeah, I'm going to gloss over that. I want to show you today there's actually so much truth and power even in genealogies, even though this officially might not be a genealogy. I hope to convince you that, if you're not convinced already, that these lists of names that appear in the scripture that we read today are of great importance. They're of great importance to tell the story of the accomplishment of our salvation, I hope you are beginning to understand if you come to Waypoint Church that God did not accomplish our salvation through Christ who appeared out of the blue one day. It wasn't just, oh, one day randomly Jesus came and he saved everybody. Instead, God, God provided a salvation for us by first promising that he would. He promised that the victorious Savior would one day appear and he would appear not dropping from the sky without warning, but in fulfillment to promises already made. The accomplishment of our salvation therefore began with a promise. It involved the fulfillment of that promise in human history. God promised to accomplish our salvation through the offspring of a woman, and he was faithful to bring it about. Guys, that's what the scriptures tell us. That's the story of our redemption. The scriptures tell the story of God calling and preserving a people for himself in this world. And it was through this people that Christ eventually came to pay the price of sin and bring out reconciliation. I want you to hear this. There is no gospel of Jesus Christ apart from genealogies. Matthew began his gospel with what? Genealogy. Good job. I figured you guys would get that question if you didn't know, because that's what we're talking about. The first words in his gospel presentation are the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Luke's gospel also has a genealogy at the heart of it. It says in chapter 3, Now I'll say it again. There is no gospel of Jesus Christ apart from genealogies, for God determined in eternity to accomplish our redemption progressively in human history through the selection and preservation of an elect line of people that he chose, he preserved, and he set apart until the birth of Christ who atoned for all sins of all men. And what we see here in Genesis 10 are the early stages of the development of that story. If you notice that this is a list of names, differs a bit from the list of names. Um, and before we get into this, actually, I want to share, the way I want to do this sermon today is really quickly, I'm just going to give you guys a list of observations about this text so that you're ready to understand this text, and they're going to give you two main points, okay? So here's a list of observations. The first one is this list of names differs a bit from the list of names that we encountered earlier in the book of Genesis. Earlier lists are like, are actually our genealogies, where they clearly trace the descent from father to son. For example, Genesis chapter 5. They read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And when Adam lived 130 years, then he had this child, and then he had this child, and then he had this child. The language is less precise here in Genesis chapter 10. 
Because this is not as much a genealogy as what the scholars call a table of nations. The point is to show where the nations of the earth descended from, from the days of Noah. Point two, observation two, that is, not point, observation. This passage is a continuation of what was said in Genesis 9.18. There we read, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 maps out the dispersion of the peoples of the earth descending from Noah's three sons. Three, remember who Genesis was written to and by. Genesis was originally written not to us, but by Moses to ancient Israel after they had been redeemed from Egypt. While it's difficult for you and I to recognize the names on this list, you got to imagine that the people, for us, were like, oh, these are random names, random nations, and random people. But for the people who just came out of Egypt, this is recent history. These are the peoples that they've known about or heard about for thousands, hundreds of years. This is more of an awareness of these are the tribes, these are the, the fighters, these are the people who are warring constantly against each other. These are the people who conquered this land, they conquered this land. And as they heard their names, they would recognize them, and they'd have to visualize where these people live. They would visualize who's ticking over who, and they would also think something else. And this is, this is critical. These are all the people that also they knew there's emotional connection to these names. There was a, this is a tribe that conquered me, or this is a tribe that put me into slavery, or this is a tribe that put all those people into slavery. This is a tribe that conquered this land. This is not just random names as we read. There's actually people who did certain things to them or to each other. Four, notice the order in which the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth are listed. First, the descendants of Japheth are presented, then Ham, and then Shem. Why this order? See, up to this point, the order has always been Ham, Shem, and Japheth. When I decided, when I was going to have, hopefully one day I was praying to have triplets. And those were the names I was going to go for. Either that or Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Those were the dreams. But it was always Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It wasn't this order. It wasn't the other order. It was, Sham, it was Ham, Shem, and Japheth. But here the order is Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And this order makes sense only if we consider it from the perspective of ancient Old Covenant Israel. And the context of the overarching story of redemption. Here's what I mean. The Japheth are mentioned first, and the least detail is given concerning them. Because they were the people furthest removed from the Israelites. They were the people with whom the Israelites had least contacts. They were the kind of ends of the earth people, right? The Hamites are mentioned second, and with much more detail, because they are the people that Israel had most contact with. And many of them were their enemies. Verse 6, we read, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Of those four names, two are probably familiar to us, Egypt and Canaan. And consider that the Israelites had just been freed from Egypt, and they were going into the land of Canaan. The Shemites are mentioned last, because this is a line through which the Hebrew people, God's chosen people under the Old Covenant, would descend. This is an intentional reordering of listing here in this uh, table of nations. So five. Noah cursed Ham for his sin, but he did not curse Ham directly, but he cursed his son, Canaan. Now, it should be clear why Noah cursed, Ham and not, Noah cursed Canaan, not Ham. For not all who descended from Ham were cursed, but only the Canaanites. Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Again, this must be considered from the perspective of the Israelites who had been redeemed from slavery to Egypt and was sojourning into the promised land of the Canaanites. It's significant, number six, that all the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth are counted. The number comes to 70. 
70 is a number of completion in the scriptures. Clearly, this is not a complete and detailed genealogy of the sons of Noah. It's a selective list. The number 70 means the idea of completeness. Genesis 9, 18, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Guys, literally what that means for you guys to understand, there's certain numbers that carry a value that's not just the value of that number in the Bible. Okay? Give me, somebody give me an example of that. Anybody? 12? Somebody say 12? 7? 40? Yeah. The numbers, who said 12? They might say someone, who said, who said 12? They might know 12? I heard 12. Yep, there you go. Good job, 12. Give me something. Where, where in the Bible was 12? Anywhere? Disciples, tribes. Right? How many baskets were left over after Jesus? What? Twelve. Somebody said twelve. I like that. Whoever said twelve. <laughs> Love it. Because here's the deal, guys. Twelve signifies, yes, it signifies the number of tribes, but it also signified the completion of all the people. Why were twelve baskets left over? Because it meant all the people of God would be fed. See, it's a number 12, but it wasn't literally meant for, oh, 12 baskets mean 12, 12 more people exactly. This guy, number 70 doesn't literally mean 70. It means all the peoples. That's important because you'll see the point that I make with it. See, seven, special attention should be paid to the remarks that are made about certain individuals in this list. For example, Nimrod. Yes. Guys, can I just tell you, who needs baby name books? Right? All you need is the Bible. These are good names. Right? Nimrod, verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before, therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Which, you kind of, when I first read this, I was like, can that be me? Like, I'm not even a hunter, but that sounds pretty cool. Like, I want to be known as the mighty hunter before the Lord. It's not a good thing. Just throwing that out there. It's not a good thing. It's meant to catch our attention in brief. It communicates that in the line of Ham was a characterized by mighty men. There were oppressive rulers who engaged in city building, not the glory of God, but to the glory of man. It is actually not a good thing. And that's what, when I first heard that from a pastor a long time ago, I was so disappointed. You know, when they said mighty men of old or these mighty men and mighty hunter, I thought that meant like, like, oh, these were like awesome warriors like Hercules or something like that. And I was like, yes, I would have thought that to be me. But it actually meant these were like warlords. These were people who decided to conquer through force, the might of arms. These were the mighty warriors, but it wasn't a good thing. They thought, I'm a mighty warrior, not God is my mighty warrior. And they started establishing cities for their own personal glory. But we notice that when we come to the line of Shem in verse 28, we read, To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. It is highlighted emphasized from the outset that Shem was the father of all the children of Eber. From Eber, the Hebrew people will descend. And this is emphasized from the very beginning. So I listed seven observations about this text. Here's what I want us to do. Now I want us to make just two very simple, very poignant points. Number one, we are all equal. And number two, we are meant to be a blessing to the nations. The table of nations poses a problem for the human heart. And it's a problem that comes up in every single generation that's ever lived it's this problem. This passage, many of you know, has often and frequently, and I don't know if many of you guys know this, but this passage has often and frequently been used to say that Ham, Noah's son, who was cursed in the previous chapter, that th the reason that this genealogy is here is to show that there's a group of people in history that are biologically inferior to the rest of humanity. Have you guys ever heard that before? Yeah? You've heard that before. And the passage has been used that way many times and in many different ways. The immediate problem with that is that Cush is not is not actually the one that gets cursed in Genesis chapter 9. It's only Ham's son, Canaan. 
So it actually doesn't make sense because only one son, not Cush, who gets cursed. So the people which come from Cush are not actually the sons of the curse. That's just for starters. But that's one of the big problems with that argument. But the logical problems haven't mattered because people of all stripes have used this passage in that way throughout generations so much so, as actually I was doing some research for this sermon this week, at the, center, at the university, at university of Yale, there's a center devoted only to studying the table of nations. But not just studying the table of nations, about how it's been used in different people groups throughout the world to support racism or support the claims of racial superiority and inferiority but not just from one race to another, but they were used all throughout by different races to profess this. One book in particular that got produced out of the center is called The Curse of Ham. And the author notes how many different cultures have used this passage to claim inferiority or to very divergent people groups. He talks about how it was used in the Third Reich against the Jews, which makes no logical sense whatsoever, because if you're, if you're basing it on blessing and cursing it's the Israelites, the line of Shem, that are blessed ones in this passage. The author says, this passage has been exploited for purposes of racism for centuries. Who is inferior is always variable depending on the culture and the time period. And look, we, we know this is a universal problem, not just between black and white, historically expressed, but also between the Aryans and the Jews and the Third Reich or Hutu and the Tutsis in Rwanda or the Rohingya peoples or all around the world, all throughout history, we've seen over and over and over the case being made that one race, one ethnicity is inferior. And many times it's so sad they've used this passage of scripture incorrectly, illogically, to make that proclamation. The sad thing is, the point of Genesis chapter 10 is completely the opposite. The whole point of the passage, Walter Brueggemann, uh, Old Testament commentary says is this, the transcending truth of the table is that it gives an unparalleled ecumenical vision of human reality. The table declares the interrelatedness of peoples. We all have the same ancestry. We all share the dual paternity of Adam and Noah. Our DNA comes from the same source. Being cursed or being blessed in the Bible has nothing to do with DNA, nor does it register superior or inferior ethnicity. Herman Bovink, a theologian in the 19th century, in the midst of a lot of race issues in Europe and America, this is what he says. The unity of the human race is a, certainly, is a certainty in Holy Scripture, but it's almost never been acknowledged by every culture, and especially not by the peoples who have lived outside the circle of the Bible. The Greeks, for example, consider themselves biologically superior and proudly look down on all the barbarians. This contrast is found in virtually every nation in all of history. What this passage is hope, what it's showing us, what it's passionately proclaiming to us, is that we humans are all equal. We all can sing that song. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. <laughs> That's our song. That's the song of a diverse people group. That's the song of the human image. That's the song of the image of God that's in humanity. That's the song of every single one of our hearts, whether you're from whatever country you're from, whether whatever race you are. The song that unifies us is that we get to sing the song of Father Abraham. We have the same DNA. We are made in the image of God. We are, we are set apart as different from the animals on this earth. We have dignity in our human condition. But we're all equals. 
Another thing that makes us all equals is that we're all equally sinners. Every one of us. Genesis chapter 10 is screaming that out. Yelling that out. And it's so sad to me how many people, how many cultures have used that passage to say the opposite. In Acts chapter 17, Paul turns to these Greeks who would think everybody else was barbarians. In verse 26, he says to them, We all have the same father. We all have kinsmen by blood. Referring to our core basic humanity that flowed from Adam and Eve and from Abraham and Noah. And Genesis couldn't have been clear about this already up at this point. Genesis 1 makes a big deal out of the fact that every single human being is born in the image of God. But even more than that, if a person does try to use blessing and cursing narrative to support some type of racism, the problem is that as soon as you leave the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, you get to Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 2, the very first story is the story of Rahab, who was the cursed Canaanite. But she was lifted up and esteemed. But not only was she lifted up and esteemed, she was in the very descendant of Jesus, or very ancestor of Jesus. See, you can argue all you want. Oh, well, Lawrence, that's, I'm just going to argue against that because you kind of read into that. But then as soon as you leave, you leave it, you see, she was cursed because she was a Canaanite. No, a Canaanite was blessed. She was blessed. A Canaanite, who was supposed to be the enemy, was blessed and called special, called set apart, became one of the people. And not only did she get called apart, set apart, she's actually an ancestor of Jesus. She's in the genealogy. See, so much you can learn from genealogy. The Bible is clear. We're all human beings made in the image of God. We have dignity in that. We also have something else that universally connects us, is that we're all sinners. We're all on equal footing before God. We're all sinners incapable of washing away our own sin. We all need a Savior. One of that songs that you guys sang is, Everyone needs compassion. I just felt like singing today, so we're just going for it. But. That's right. There is a human condition that exists in all of us that we are incapable of saving ourselves. And what unifies us is that we yearn for, that the divine image that's inside of us yearns for a relationship with the divine, with God, and we yearn for it. That unifies us, but we are incapable of finding that connection. We're incapable of crossing the bridge. We're incapable of crossing the chasm. There's something that separates us, a sin that overwhelms us, but Jesus is the answer. He died in our place so that we can have right relationship, so that the divine that was created in us that we're made for God, that we can now have the right relationship with them through Jesus and it wasn't an accident it was made this was a redemptive plan from beginning of history all the way back to Genesis this was his plan his redemptive plan all throughout history and that's why I love history because this is cheesy I'll just do it anyway that's why I love history because it's his story yeah that's right that's right yeah I did it Number two, the point two, is we are meant to be a blessing to the nations. This table of nations, Genesis 10, makes it clear that those who were descended from Japheth were the ones who were far removed from Israel. They were the Gentile people, the people with whom Israel had least contact. But we must remember, this is Genesis chapter 9, it says this, verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. God's purpose from the beginning was to bless all the nations of the earth, even those who were far off through his chosen people, the Israelites. This has become even more clear when we go to Genesis chapter 12, and God calls Abram one of Shem's descendants. And then we will read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
and I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I'll curse, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Two things are communicated here. One, God will make Abram into a great nation, and two, in Abram, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a reiteration of the blessing pronounced upon Japheth when Noah said, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. God's purpose from the beginning was to save people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Savior, Jesus, when he did come, would be the Savior of the world and not of the Hebrews only. The Savior would defeat the evil one who plunged the world into sin and darkness and redeem the children of Adam, who was a father not of the Jews only, but of all peoples. The Savior would come into the world through one particular people, the Israelites, and then through the, the Jewish people that all nations of the earth will be blessed. This was God's design. So much of the Old Testament scriptures focuses upon this one people, the, the Hebrew people, that it would be easy to assume that God had a supreme goal of salvation uh, only through those people. But really, Genesis chapter 12 uh, through the end of the Old Testament, it's about things that happened amongst the Hebrews, but the original design was for them to be blessed, to bless the nations. Ultimately, through who came from the line of Israel, Jesus. We live in an amazing time. We live in a time where the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to this place because we're the Japheth, uh, Japheth uh, Hamshem and Japheth, we're the Jephethites. <laughs> Once again, me just trying to say that. Good job. <laughs> we live in a time where we, the Gentiles, we, the furthest ones away, have gotten to heard, hear, and receive the good news of the gospel. We're the ones now the tent has been expanded, and we now belong in the tent. So now we are the people of Shem. We are now the people of Abraham. Do you hear that? We are one people together under Jesus. And the good news of salvation has been preached to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and has gone to the ends of the earth. But guys, can you hear me very well when I say this? There are still people who don't know. There are still people who don't know the good news of the gospel. And so for us who are the people of Shem, for us who are the people of Abraham, who are meant to be the people of blessing, the people of nations, the people who are set apart so we can bless the nations, then that's what we should be doing. Do you hear me? That's who we are. Our identity is now found. The tent has been enlarged. We are now inside the tent. We're now part of the body. We're part of the team. Here in Waypoint Church, we say it like this, guys. If you're, you know, if you're on the team, you're, there's no sitting in the bench. There is no bench. You're on the team, and you're playing in the game. We also say it like this, that every member is a missionary. It's this idea that we're in the tent, we're on the team, and what we do in the tent on the team is we go after the same goals together. And one of those values, one of those goals for us is because the scripture says so. Because God moves in our heart to make it so, we value the nations. We want to be a blessing to all. We want the gospel to go forth to people who do not know it. We want people of every tribe, tongue, and, uh, tribe, tongue, and nation to be sitting around the throne of God worshiping him. One of our values here at Waypoint Church is a nation, and we believe it is a biblical calling. Amen? So let's love the nations together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for God giving us this distinctive to be able to love and to have a goal of being a blessing to the nations. God, we thank you first, God, that, God, that we can know that we are one. 
God, that the issues of racism that we face in our culture, God, that are put to rest in knowing you. And God, it breaks my heart that so often so many of these issues come from those who profess to know you, who've often warped scripture to prove their ideology. God, may your scripture be so real. May it be what shapes us. And God, may we know that we are all sinners and we're all equal. And blessing and cursing does not come based on race. God, we ask, Lord, that we can be a church that shows a heart for the nations, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.